1: College. She holds a 2007 PhD from Purdue University and also a JD in international Law from Moscow National Law Academy. Her research and um, interests include Eurasian and international security, counterterrorism and human rights as we're going to see today, um, but also democracy promotion in the post-Soviet uh, territory and foreign policy of Russia and um, Eurasia. She has published a number of journal articles on these topics in terrorism and political violence, Eurasian studies, International Journal of Human Rights, and other journals. And she's also the author of three books, uh, Counterterrorism Policies in Central Asia, Democracy in Central Asia, Competing Perspectives and Alternative Strategies, and uh, most recently with Lawrence Markowitz, who is a UW PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, most recent book called Corrupt Security, Trafficking, Terrorism, Nexus in Central Asia, which is what we're going to hear about. So please join me in welcoming uh, Professor Imel-Turall.
0: Thank you so much for this kind introduction, and thank you so much to all those of you who came here either voluntarily or involuntarily. I really, really <laughs> appreciate <laughs> you being here, and I am truly delighted to be on this campus. This is my first visit to University of Wisconsin-Madison. But having said that, I've been engaged. I've uh, learned a lot of things. We've done things together with uh, Krika before. During my tenure at the University of Kansas, I served in the capacity of both as an associate and uh, director of the KU Center for Russian-European and Eurasian Studies. So I had a pleasure of working um, with Jennifer um, on a number of uh, joint projects. And I never admitted that, but we've always uh, Looked up to CRECA here, uh, kind of as a role model uh, for all other natural resource centers. So, kudos to the staff, to the faculty, and students for all the great projects and programming that you've been offering to the community, students, and whoever other constituents are. So, thanks. Um, yes, and as it was mentioned, my presentation today is uh, based on the book that my co author, Lawrence Markowitz, and I published this year, and I'm glad it was mentioned that he is a proud alumnus of um, this school. Um, And um, he passes greetings (laughs) to everyone who couldn't be here. And I also need to acknowledge uh, the uh, funding, the funders. So the research that went into writing this book was generously funded by Minerva Grant um, that allowed us to put a lot of effort into researching trafficking in Eurasia, uh, administered by the Office of Naval Research. And last but not least, since now I'm affiliated with the government, I have to say that nothing that I say here represents the official opinion of the government or the Department of Defense or the National Defense University. So it's all based on of like, personal conclusions research that Lawrence and I conducted. Um, and one more thing, this uh, project is part of a, a bigger research program. So we looked much more comprehensively Um, not only into Central Asia, but Russia's Caucasus and South Caucasus um, and even other parts of the world to look into this problem. I expanded (coughs) this research beyond drug trafficking and terrorism to look into human trafficking and terrorism, so that's just FYI. So I would be happy to uh, talk not just about this project, but if anyone is interested in this particular topic, we can look broader than um, Central Asia and uh, the nexus of drug trafficking and terrorism. So, after this lengthy introduction, um, let me begin by reminding you what is still a dominant narrative in the condensed version. This dominant narrative purports that the terrorist groups have become increasingly opportunistic. If we look at the examples of ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Abu Sayyaf, uh, Boko Haram, all of them have resorted to a range of criminal activities, drug trafficking, human trafficking, extortions, and the list goes on. And there is a couple of reasons for why um, terrorist groups have become more prone to engage in crime. One has to do with the fact that at the end of the Cold War, two main funding revenue streams dwindled. One, state sponsorship of terrorism. The second one, the charitable donations. So now, uh, the terrorist groups have to look out uh, into other revenue streams, including criminal activities. And in conjunction with that, we also have uh, globalization processes, technological innovations, the speed and ease with which um, people and goods and services can um, cross borders. All of that um, enabled both terrorist organizations and criminal groups to carry out their, you know, vicious deals, but also uh, collaborate um, among themselves. Sounds convincing? Sounds convincing? Yes. (laughs) Well, um, when we, uh, back in 2015, when we were thinking about this project, we were kind of uh, convinced, uh, but also a little bit perplexed. We were like, well, it sounds a little bit overly simplistic, and we thought that um, there is probably a little bit more nuance um, um, that that is needed in in, in exploring this subject. And this subject has received a lot of attention. So I I, I put all these volumes on this slide not because they all um, uh, agree with this narrative that I just articulated, but just because in the past five, 10 years, there have been um, sizable literature and policy analysis published and many meetings, NATO meetings, UN meetings, UNODC meetings, um, meetings of various agencies within the, 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 the United States. So there's been a lot of, lot of interest in uh, this topic of crime-terrorism nef- nexus. And kind of willingly or unwittingly, this narrative of conversions or crime-terror nexus as prevalent and pervasive phenomenon that is threatening security of individual threats and global security, it has been perpetuated. What caught our attention was a number of dissenting voices, like the ones presented by uh, a Brookings scholar, Phelba Brown. Uh, Her famous quote says, the best way of being a drug trafficker is to work for the Ministry of Counter-Narcotics. Kind of hinting at the fact that, you know, the countries that are the most corrupt, and this is the uh, bottom 10 countries and the corruption index list of 2018. Um, so uh, the, the Transparency International puts together that index. The the lower you are on the list, the more corrupt you are. And you probably see many uh, of the places where, if you Google "Kuwaiternexus" and Uzbekistan or Nexus and Somalia, you will see uh, quite few articles, publications, academic and policy reports, suggestive that this phenomenon is prevalent there. But again, it's kind of hints that there is something beneath of um, that uh, dominant narrative, that simplistic narrative that uh, presents um, the ease with which uh, terrorist groups and criminal organizations can coalesce or can cooperate and how widely spread that conversions or nexus is. So a lot of presenters um, keep you kind of in limbo waiting until the end of the presentation to present conclusions. I'm going to present them up front so that you know where I'm coming from. So this is uh, what I think three major takeaways from our research and from our book. First thing is that Lawrence and I would challenge this assumption that the intersection of terrorist and criminal activity is prevalent and common occurrence. Um, What we show in our book, and what I show, hopefully, um, a glimpse of um, this much richer analysis, that this nexus varies across countries, within countries, across time. And there are lots of, lots of, lots of obstacles um, that terrorist groups face, even if they want to collaborate with criminal organizations, OK? That's first. The second is that we can't really understand the nexus without considering the role of the state. It is the state, specifically its collusion in the drug drug trade that defines the varied intersections of organized crime, trafficking, and terrorism. And the third is that we question this simplistic association that drug trafficking amplifies terrorism by strengthening its, its financial base and making terrorist groups more durable and more deadly. Okay. And in a way, this is going to be the three points, the, the map of my presentation. I will kind of stop. Uh, um, We'll, we'll discuss each of those, and to link it to Central Asia, um, that the third point is particularly um, illustrative, in that Central Asia, despite all of the predictions that this is the region which is predominantly Muslim, which uh, rediscovered religion in, you know, after, the fall of terror, uh, after the fall of Soviet Union, is inevitably going to experience Islamic radicalization and terrorism, all of these predictions did not pan out. As a matter of fact, if we looked at the available data, it shows that Central Asia, the five Central Asian republics together, uh, are experienced less than 0.2% of the global total. And even those attacks that did take place there, they were small scale, typically targeting security uh, officers or governmental officials, not just striking indiscriminately and killing a bunch of um, ordinary citizens. And If you try to dig dig deeper, the identities of perpetrators, the motives of perpetrators are also in question, so sometimes it is a question mark as to whether or not the allegedly terrorist attacks were actually politically motivated violence or maybe it's some other type of violence that took place. Central Asia has never really had well-organized and deeply ideological violent Islamist organizations that can be found in other Muslim Banjuri regions. You know, I can tell you that IMU, the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan and the Islamic jihad movement, they are still very different from, um, you know, Hamas, Hezbollah. It um, at least goes on. So, And again, this is despite that Central Asia is... Um, a territory that kind of squeezed between the uh, drug producing locations, Afghanistan in particular, but also Pakistan. Um, uh, the drugs from Afghanistan, the number one op- opioids producer, are uh, trafficked through a number of routes. Uh, the northern route, which is made up of meandering pathways pathways uh, going through Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Central Asian republics, and route to Russia and Europe. Uh, by different accounts, about a third of all Afghan drugs travels through the northern. Um, a route of, of, of um, drug trafficking so Central Asia is squeezed in between the market of uh, producing drugs and the markets that uh, demand uh, drugs in, in Russia and Europe. Um, it is also the territory that had its own homegrown extremist ex- extremist organizations but also plenty mm-hmm. in the neighborhoods again Afghanistan and Pakistan come into picture despite of all this. Um, it it hasn't really experienced nearly as much terrorist activity in the region as um, many expected. Okay, Um, let me clarify a few terms. So the crime-terror nexus has become this very loose, catch-all term that is used to describe uh, discrete, um, distinct Uh, activities, phenomena, relationships. In the literature on the crime-terror nexus, uh, crime-terror nexus is usually understood in one of two ways. One is as operational connections, meaning that either a terrorist group appropriates criminal activities like Al-Qaeda engages in drug trafficking, or a criminal organization appropriates politically motivated violence, like La Familia, In Mexico, a drug, I mean, again, um, a criminal organization resorts to politically motivated killings, so appropriation of activities, so operational connections. A second approach uh, emphasizes organizational linkages. This is when um, a criminal organization and a terrorist group, uh, because they don't have in-house capabilities, they rely on each other's skills, knowledge. So, for example, Al-Qaeda Used um, um, Italian mafia to forge documents or to allow them to um, build safe houses in various locations in, in Europe. Or modern terrorist organization may use uh, criminal groups, which can provide um, hawala-related money laundering or money tr- transaction services if, if, if an extremist group doesn't have those in-house capabilities. Okay, and. Um, So what we wanted to do, and we we were kind of among those scholars who tried to think about it and bring it all together. And uh, so we decided to um, uh, present a a typology and uh, enclose it in a kind of spatial temporal cylinder denoting the importance of the context. So we have to place um, any kind of relationships or any kind of interactions in a specific context, in space, and time, so location matter, time matter. And so we envision the relationships in this kind of pyramid, enclosed in a spatial context, in a spatial cylinder, uh, denoting the importance of the context. Another thing that we introduced was that at the very basic uh, elemental level, you have to have uh, terrorist groups and criminal organizations just functioning on their own, because if there is no criminal activity, to corrupt uh, terrorist groups, then the nexus is not going to take place. Um, so we kind of our starting point is to identify the location where those types of activities are taking place, independent or semi-independent of each other. And I'm going to kind of run a little bit ahead of myself, but um, this is what happens in most of the parts of the world. The nexus um, manifests itself more often in. Um, terrorist groups or extremist groups, militant groups and criminal organizations operating in the same space uh, without any kind of intersections um, and then we you know, also advance the operational alliance relationship and there are also instances when uh, the two groups collaborate, collaborate uh, for an extended period of time or a group continues relying on criminal activity and it kind of becomes a hybrid. So a terrorist group, like Islamic Movement of Uzbekistan or Abu Sayyaf, having resorted to um, criminal activity for an extended period of time. And with the change in leadership, may kind of take on those economic for-profit motives, so it becomes a hybrid. Sometimes it transmogrifies, transmogrifies. <coughs> and um, you know a criminal group turns into a terrorist one, a terrorist becomes a criminal. But very, very rarely uh, do those. Uh, con- types of conversions um, or hybrids emerge. Last but not least, there are lots of errors here. And what they mean is that contrary to other thinking about relationships and intersections and sort of linear progression, we argue that you know, there is no kind of a predetermined path. You don't need to go through all of the steps to be hi- become a hybrid or to, <coughs> become, uh, uh, um, you know, to converge. Um, so you can you know, start here and end up here. Or you can start here and end up here. So again, so kind of to try to give it a little bit more thinking um, in our um, typology. So, and then the next thing we did, we looked at you know the uh, characteristics of locations that make this nexus more or less likely to take place. And we didn't really find many surprises um, in that part of the research because we essentially confirmed that terrorism and crime are more likely uh, to take place in locations that are close to international borders, in proximity to major uh, transportation hubs, close to the capitals or urban centers. You know, we confirmed some of the hypotheses pertaining to the importance of um, youth, and if the youth is um, deprived of educational and employment opportunities, it may be drawn into those kinds of activities. So we did do lots of tests just to look at the kinds of locations and socio-political determinants of where and when the nexus may emerge. But what more interesting for this audience and something that I presented as our second point about the state, that is why I want to spend more time talking about the role of the state. If we want to understand, is it going to be an operational relationship, is it going to be a hybrid, is it going to be an uh, and uh, some form of association. So if we want to understand variation within the nexus, what kind of form the nexus is gonna take on, we really need to consider the role of the state. So the state is instrumental to understanding how, um, in uh, what kind of relationship the organized criminal groups and terrorist groups will engage in, but what kind of state. And this is where we challenge another conventional wisdom which claims that it is weak, failed um, states that are the hot spots, the most hospitable location to both crime and terrorism. Uh, What we argue is that organized criminal organizations in particular prefer functioning states with some institutional degradation but not failed. So if you're interested in this topic, I recommend reading uh, Patrick Stewart, um, uh, a, a work on failed states where he shows that there's actually not that much correlation between failed states um, using the failed state index and various outputs um, crime terrorism and whatnot that the failed state index or the notion of failed states conceals immense diversity uh, <coughs> uh, within those states and we argue that it isn't um, so, When we look at the state, weak state or failed state or normal state, what's important is to uh, differentiate between capacity or capability and political will. Because if you have two weak states, uh, like Pakistan and Ghana, just making this up, um, even if they have the same kind of output in terms of being unable to deal with organized crime or terrorism, is it due because they are unwilling? There's a lack of political will? or is it due to the lack of capacity? It matters. So so in our um, research, we are um, arguing that it's really important to distinguish states on these two dimensions. And as scholars, as theorists, of course, we had to come up with another um, uh, typology of state based on these two dimensions of capacity and political will. And this is just. Shortcuts, these are just heuristics. These are ideal types that we use to analyze very, very complex reality. Okay? So we came up with these catchy uh, names to denote like, states uh, that have both political will to target, to cope with, to respond to terrorism and drug trafficking, and having the capacity to do so as hegemonic um, states not hegemonic in an international relations sense, but again, we're just using it as, as a type, uh, as, a, as a way of simplifying something that is very, very complex. So if uh, uh, states have political will, but very low capacity to deal successfully with the problem of trafficking and terrorism, they have degr- degraded state capacity. If they have very low political will, but very strong capacity, they are predatory states. And lastly, um, if they are lacking both political will and capabilities, they are captured. Okay, so, and before I, so so our, you know, our theory, our punchline is that um, these differences in the will and capacity help us understand the type of nexus that emerges and I'll have a table and, and it will explain how it, it is all linked to the outcomes. Before I do that, another important caveat. So we are very, very accustomed to thinking about the state in a Weberian state, in a Weberian sense and in a sense as a kind of unitary um, and singu- singular entity, okay? Even though I use state in singular, and I kind of imply in my rhetoric that the state is a unitary actor, this is not how we treat the state. We treat the state as spatially and temporary, multiple and polyvalent. What it means is that um, when we state that when we state that the state colludes in drug trafficking, what we really ask ourselves: which agencies within the state? Is it the state in a sense of central authorities, president and his apparatus, or is it the state in a sense of? local authorities and those provincial apparatuses? Are we asking about border guards, customs, uh, security agents, interior forces? um, And also recognizing that there is no oftentimes consensus uh, among all these agencies and levels uh, within the state. So we really, um, um, in, in our research, we are trying to emphasize the importance of looking within the state and understanding all these complexities, that the state is not a uniform, unitary, singular persona. And we, all of our research was done looking at security forces, border um, um, troops, uh, customs, um, military, interior forces, and presidential administrations, and center provinces, center uh, oblast uh, relations. OK, now. So as I said, um, in our research, in our book, what we find and the argument that we make is that we can understand what type of nexus that the terrorist groups and criminals will form based on um, the kind of capabilities and political will that the government has to deal with um, those uh, Illicit and oftentimes violent activities. So, um, I'm going to introduce you to our cases. But again, uh, given um, that we, we don't have that much time, there is a, a lot of a lot of data, and it's always very difficult to um, present something that is so complex very concisely. So, it's, um, again, it's going to be a huge oversimplification, and I will be happy to uh, clarify things in the Q&A. But here it goes. So uh, look at the example of Uzbekistan since 2000. We argue that Uzbekistan has a hegemonic capacity to deal with drug trafficking and terrorism. And as a result, it panned out best than any other central republic. So it it does have drug trafficking. It did have some terrorist attacks, attacks, but we haven't found any kind of um, convincing intersections um, between the two. So what happened in Uzbekistan, at some point in the 1990s, the political leadership, President Karimov, made a decision that uh, they want to withdraw the state from drug trade. That it was detrimental to national security and the interests of the regime. The regime said that what was important for the regime is to establish control over the 13, I think 13 regions, okay, and to be able to do that, Uzbekistan began investing very, very heavily into its security apparatus sending its uh, security agents to all of the um, regions and um, allowing the security apparatus to take rents from a variety of legal activities, agriculture, industrial production, but also trade. transborder activity was taxed. So it's not that the state is completely not corrupt. So as far as drug trafficking is concerned, though, um, the state has withdrawn, has made a decision to withdraw from drug uh, trade and reward the security services by allowing it to take rents, to abuse the social authority, uh, by engaging in uh, rent seeking in a variety of other legal um, sectors of the economy, and um, also exercising oversight, uh, the central oversight over local cohems co- and whatnot. Okay? So, um, and, and we know the, the role that security forces um, have played in, you know, in Uzbekistan in clamping down on religious dissent and um, um, not allowing uh, radicalization to, to take root. and, uh, and so that the, the strong um, security capabilities really played a role in um, uh, bringing down the level of organized crime, drug trafficking, and um, terrorist activity in the country. Um, yeah, so some of you may, 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 may you know bring up the cases of 1999, bombings so or 2004, and I can talk at length about those um, you know those terrorist activities uh, with the question mark as to whether or not um, they were indeed perpetuated by um, Islamic movement of Uzbekistan or Islamic Jihad um, uh, Union. So if, again, for those of you who are really into details and wanna and know more about those instances and why we concluded that. Those are kind of tenuous, uh, th- those were terrorist attacks, but their uh, connection to Islamist, transnational Islamist groups, is, 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 there is there is a question mark there. And uh, there, there, is no, there, there has been no connection established between um, uh, terrorist organizations and drug trafficking um, groups in that state. Now, I'm gonna use an example of Kazakhstan, and if you wanna know more about Kyrgyzstan, I'll, I'll bring some examples from uh, Kyrgyzstan as well. You may think, what? (laughs) Kazakhstan, degraded capacity, it's one of the uh, more developed, uh, richer states. Yes, but, um, so a couple of things um, that stand out for Kazakhstan. Number one is, it is a large swath of land, sparsely populated, and it presented a major obstacle to consolidation of drug trade. So the drug trade does take place there, but it's very, very fragmented. So it, it is very difficult to consolidate to, uh, 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 drug trade in Kazakhstan. Secondly, it's a petroleum state. So rents on energy production and oil-related businesses are much more lucrative than anything that has to do with drugs that are very, very fragmented. Okay? So the political elites of Kazakhstan, when they you know, came to power, President Zarbayev put all of its energy into um, establishing, consolidating, control over the strategic uh, sectors of industry, including energy. And the resources that they were able to generate were put into the formation, into the political project, the Nurtan party, because that was one of the steps for you know consolidating, the rule consolidating the, 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 the power in the office of the president. And uh, as you also know, Kazakhstan has also presented itself as kind of regional leader and uh, a leader on a variety of global projects. So when it came to investments, it invested into National Guard. It invested into type of special uh, forces. But it heavily, heavily, heavily underinvested into the kinds of agencies that you need to effectively combat drug trafficking and terrorism. So border troops, uh, customs. Law enforcement, they've been perennially underfunded and lacking capacity. That is why we classify it as a degraded capacity. So Nazarbayev has the political will uh, to deal with um, the expressions or manifestations of of extremism or terrorism and drug trafficking. But there have been limited capacity that um, translated into some examples of the um, operational um, operational activities where you have um, former criminals committing suicides under the guise of religious slogans like in 2011 in Aktobi. Octo- in so again, not very, very frequent. Um, again, we're challenging another narrative that comes out of the region that we have a bunch of uh, gangsters turn um, criminals turn uh, extremists it is really not as um, as, uh, prevalent or um, (coughs) as some of those governments would like us to believe. So we have some criminals peeling off their um, organized criminal groups and joining uh, extremist organizations or radicalizing, but again, this is not a a very, very commonplace phenomenon. So now, Tajikistan, has gone through quite some change when it comes to its uh, uh, capacity to uh, respond to drug trafficking and terrorism. Let me, let me talk about the, the captured first uh, because it's historically it makes sense. You know that it was a country that um, uh, experienced civil war in the 1990s and uh, the government forces for the United Tajik Opposition forces, after the war, the peace agreement, the peace accord, required um, bringing some of the militants into the governmental positions and the integration of the um, militia formations fighting on the side of the United Tajik Opposition into the regular military, uh, into the regular army. Um, it is also no secret that during the Tajik War, a Tajik civil war. Both the uh, uh, government forces, the government leaders and the warlords um, they were engaged in drug trafficking, and they used funding received from drug trafficking to procure arms, to essentially to fund, fund their military campaign. And so what happened, You know we have this end of uh, the war, um, extremely weak institutional capacity. and you have those former militants, world war, war, lords turned politicians who still exercise considerable authority and power over their former military uh, formations um, becoming part of the government. And um, the IMU, the Islamic Movement of Uzbekistan, which fought in the war on the side of the um, United Tajik opposition and which did not recognize uh, the peace agreement and left Tajikistan and kind of moved back and forth between Afghanistan and, and, and Tajikistan. And with the change of the leadership, they really became much more of a drug trafficking group than a terrorist group. So we think about this group as uh, a kind of a network. It would not have been able to execute its uh, raids into Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan in 1999 and 2000 without the assistance and support of those warlords turned politicians. So it was like that kind of hybridization or conversions, again, it's, it's it, it, making the point that it's rare, it is hard, it's not du- enduring, um, it doesn't last long, but that was the period that produced a number of those hybrids or examples of conversions in, in Tajikistan. But things changed. In 2000s, so when uh, President Rahmon was able to squeeze out of um, out um, the political elites who were um, um, challenging his authority, um, who were uh, posing any kind of real or perceived threat, or um, there was also, you know, some of the regions like Bao, the uh, gorna region, and some of the districts. Um, of um, subordination, so they are also, they were key uh, locations, uh, key spots for the opposition during the war. So the leadership of those locations um, were also, um, uh, uh, Rahimov did did his best to get rid of those um, uh, politicians. Um, So what is happening during this period is that Uh, Tajikistan began investing heavily into its security apparatus as well, funded by the United States, funded by Russia, so Russia and the United States were the two major uh, funding agencies of um, uh, Tajikistan, and its security capabilities improved significantly. Um, Tajikistan today has some of the best technological uh, capacity to monitor um, the passage of drugs, they to just, to just its surveillance resources are, are you know, there's, there's, they go in no comparison with what other states have. Um, Real-time circuit TV monitoring, you name it, name it. They have a very good analytical teams to collect data, analyze data, make some forecasts um, on drug trafficking patterns or whatnot. So uh, you will think about Tajikistan is like this weak state, but it has very strong uh, capability in the area of providing security, okay? and, um, so, and the government has l- relied on, on those security capabilities, not only for uh, you know, getting rid of um, uh, the dissenters or the real and potential threats, but also, as you know, to clamp down on uh, expressions of uh, religious beliefs and identifying real and perceived threats in the population at large. Okay, and so developed very predatory capacity because it preys on the population. It utilizes its security apparatus. It controls the drug trade. They were able to uh, um, they were able to um, consolidate control uh, over the drug trade. The government is enmeshed in um, drug trade, but using um, the security apparatus, you know, to continue doing these kinds of things, and so. Um, so an example of the alliance and how it led to the creation of rare alliances is when you, uh, the government gets rid of a, a former warlord turned politician, uh, he departs but with him he has a bunch of uh, militiamen joining that he has authority over. The government chases them. Uh, they are in prison. Then we hear about another revolt. A bunch of prisoners escape. You know, the government sends the troops to, to capture them. They are ambushed, and they're ambushed by um, their uh, collaborators, who are the militants, and they've been traveling back and forth between Tajikistan um, and, and Afghanistan. So it's, kind of, again, it's a summary, but it, it has repeated itself a few times. But it usually those kind of tenuous alliances between um, the former militants turned politicians and the militants who stay militants and they left for you know Afghanistan, both engaging in criminal activities. But then when um, the former kind of fall out of um, you know lose luck, uh, the Rahman wants to get rid of them. They kind of join the alliance to um, to counter uh, the kind of the government the government attacks. So it's a very long spiel to make a case that we can. Um, uh, explain the variation within the nexus by looking at the extent to what the country, the state, the government is colluded in drug trade, you know, the political will and its capabilities. And um, we looked at, we we'll tried to apply this framework in uh, Sri Lanka, Tamil Tigers, in, uh, in uh, Europe, uh, Albania Mafia, and Kosovo Liberation Movement on FARC in Colombia, and even on pre-Civil War Syria under Saddam. Okay. Last. I'm almost done. I'm almost done. A couple of other things that I want to um, highlight. Um, The the intersections that we are talking about typically take place in this so-called localized militant groups and localized insurgencies. Most of the terrorism that we observe in the world are committed by these kinds of local or localized groups, which grow out of a variety of local conflicts over resources, water, over authority. Um, And they fight for this authority. They fight for control over the territorial resources. And they may latch on some of those global terrorist agendas, but they do that. Opportunistically, and it's important to uh, differentiate them from transnational militant and terrorist organizations, uh, which goal is to uh, uh, combat or challenge transnational global structures, international law, you know, state um, sovereignty, those types of things. And so they are less uh, concerned with uh, space than with challenging those international norms and institutions. Okay, so when it is um, when the, in, when, when we find the intersections in Central Asia, those intersections happen between local transnational, lo, I mean, lo, local uh, terrorist, uh, g- local organized criminal organizations and these uh, localized insurgencies or so localized um, militant organizations. Okay. Last promise, last. Because the other claim that we made is that regardless um, Um, with the exception of the the, uh, captured capacity, any kind of nexus with any kind of state participation will discourage terrorism in um, large numbers. So the relationship of state capacity and nexus, so I said mostly characterize the patterns of relationships between the local criminal and militant groups. But in any instance, all of these relationships are more likely to produce less, not more, terrorism. It doesn't mean that it's not going to result in violence, but that violence is going to be in the form of local insurgencies or uh, central versus local um, conflicts between the local elites or intra elite competition, but not necessarily terrorism in the conventional sense. So when a state has a predatory capacity, Independent trafficking groups have limited ability to ally with terrorist or militant movements, which are suppressed by the state. Because remember, in uh, predatory hegemony hegemonic capacity, the state has uh, the capabilities to clamp down on organized criminal groups and on the terrorist actors. So it prevents um, um, the ability for them to coalesce. In the degraded uh, state capacity, uh, trafficking groups and organized criminal actors actually are more motivated to continue <coughs> in engaging in profit-making activities. Uh, terrorist groups are competitors, okay? So uh, they are more likely to continue exploiting weaknesses of institutions rather than form alliances or engage with terrorist organizations. In other projects, I find that when we see uh, collaboration, it's oftentimes coercion. So the traffickers don't want to, <laughs> don't want to. In like in Sahel, we hear that you know. Terrorist groups and criminals copyright, but in fact, if you look close closer into the evidence, uh, transnational terrorist groups are coercing the uh, uh, local drug trafficking organization uh, to collaborate collaborate with them. So there's that happening too. It is only in the states with captured capacity um, that um, the conversions of these actors may translate into the higher rates of violence and terrorism, but overall if you look at the structure of incentives and disincentives, because of the state involvement, it kind of mediates and um, decreases uh, politically motivated violence, but again, it's not the same as decreasing any kind of violence there will still be violence, but it will be more in the form of political killings uh, because of intra elite competition or other types of violence All right. I know it was a little bit fast at the end, but I really wanted to leave plenty of time for questions. So, thank you.
1: <laughs>
2: questions, please. Um, I'm sorry, I'm not mentioning the topic, and I had to actually to Google the definition what is uh, drug tra- trafficking? And it's uh and so it's a kind of global black market for drugs. And <clears throat> so, so far my understanding is that actually those countries are not so good markets for the drugs. Isn't that uh, uh, possible that actually those their role in the drug trafficking is mostly actually to transport the drugs further? Mainly, probably Russia is a bigger consumer of drugs, and those republics are somehow somehow between the <laughs> Afghanistan, the, the biggest producer of isn't it heroin or. Uh, I don't right, yeah. Uh and so so they are kind of trafficking in between uh, Russia and Afghanistan or other countries which are better markets. Right. I, mean, I think, I mean, Europe is also going through those countries. Right. So uh, back to this thing is that what I'm thinking is that, of course, you present them a quite uh, a bit like you know a, a regime in some kind of isolated state. But isn't that the, so? If they can not go through Uzbekistan, they would choose something on the border to Uzbekistan. So. I mean, in a sense, all the countries uh, are influenced also by the regime from the neighboring countries. So if one country is okay with trafficking the drugs further, I mean, and then uh, they will do it because some other countries would not. So having Kazakhstan, just an example, having Kazakhstan, like this uh, huge uh, desert where you can easily uh, transport stuff is pre- pretty much influenced in, uh, other countries by in a way that they won't be the drug. Traffickers. Even though, if there wasn't Kazakhstan, like if there was just Poland ground, they will be the the next channel. So, in the sense that, I mean, there's some of interplay of geographical characteristics and uh, probably also institutional uh, thing uh, altogether. Mm-hmm. So, in the sense that I see that uh, you presented a bit in two isolated really, right. to my liking. Sorry. Oh, sure.
0: So. Um, uh, So a a few themes that were raised. One is with regard to drug trafficking. Yes, I didn't define, and you are right, that drug trafficking manifests itself in... So drug trafficking is used to describe a number of things. One, drug production. Two, drug transportation. And you are right that Central Asia is a transit region for opioids. However, uh, the Soviet Union had a number of... um, um, cannabinoids fields uh, are growing in Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan, so poppy seeds um, and all related drugs are locally produced, so I didn't even bring that up. So it is a, a transit country for opioids from Afghanistan, and that was the focus of this research, but there are also uh, large producing countries in the uh, poppy um, cannabis uh, market. And, and, then, and then you have the, the consumers, Um, I will respond by saying that there have been a rise in the consumption of drugs in Central Asia. So Central Asian republics, mostly transit states, but they're also producers and increasingly consumers of opioids from Afghanistan. Um, But overall, uh, the market has been changing, there have been a shift towards synthetic drugs everywhere from China, if you're interested. Second, um, and, and it matters, it, it matters because the further the drugs are from the location where they are produced, the more expensive they are, the more profit they are, uh, they, they are bringing. Okay, so that matters. And the literature suggests that both drug producing and drug transporting, the transit states, um, there is a correlation between drug trafficking and, um, and um, terrorist violence. Okay, so, so I, I agree that there is uh, differentiation in terms of the stages and what we mean, but it doesn't undermine the arguments that we make. Um, the second point that you're making is that the drug trafficking are responding to changes in the environment, including legal environment. So if new constraints are put in place, they're changing routes, they're changing the means. You know, if um, there is a new... Um, so they, they, they may, depending on what's going on, they may, ch- they may switch from using... Uh, uh, humans as mules to uh, transporting them through. um, To give you an example, there is a new bridge uh, 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 connecting one of the provinces in Afghanistan and Tajikistan. There are scanners on both sides of the bridge. And the traffickers are using uh, cement-filled lorries, the tracks, they put the drugs in there and the scanners cannot discern that there are drugs. So you're absolutely right. They're, they're, they, they are you know, they're very, very sly. They're able to circumvent whatever new obstacles that are put in place. What matters is whether countries are willing to deal, to cope with the drug trafficking. And what we are saying is that countries like Tajikistan, um, I mean, they, they, they did benefit from, 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 from drugs from drug trafficking. And so um, and, and it's gonna, the, the, the flow is gonna continue through. Whereas countries like Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, they don't want this to happen because they understand what the consequences of drug trafficking, it's, it's a huge um, drain on the public resources because, because you have a bunch of addicts. You know, you have to uh, allocate resources to health. You have to allocate resources to law enforcement. So it's a huge drain on the budget. So those government don't want it, but they don't have the capacity. And it's, and it, and, and it, it's, it's very important to distinguish um, those two things because they, you know, if you're talking about uh, shifts and movements across state borders, if the state have the will, they will find a way to move it. But if they don't, then nothing is going to change.
2: Thank you for the research. Thank you for coming. I I really like this topic. Um, I'm wondering if um, I guess you could even kind of further subdivide things, wherein um, you know they're in the same spot, they're doing the same thing, and you are kind of building to a nexus, but you know they are separate. If you know there is kind of a threshold where it crosses over, and at that nexus it then starts kind of uh, I guess separating once again. So if they hit that.
0: yeah, you're absolutely correct. So, and, and it goes along with you know, the key takeaway, which is it is incorrect to argue that crime terror nexus is durable, prevalent, and kind of in uniform. Um, and it's like this number one challenge just, I mean, I don't wanna um, underplay the importance of understanding and dealing with it, but you know, it, it varies. And it, um, it, it doesn't develop in a linear fashion. And yes, you may have, and most of those alliances are very, very fleeting. They, they're not enduring. Those actors are pragmatic. Um, they have oftentimes incompatible interests. They may coalesce in one form or another for a short period of time for a specific objective, but they can. Also, you know, then go their separate ways, and but they can also change uh, over time, and or through collaboration with their uh, uh, criminal or terrorist counter counterpart. So again, it's much more complex and messy, and not linear as we are led, oftentimes led to believe. Oh, go, go ahead. Um, I was wondering. So you were talking about um, Uzbekistan and the
1: uh, hegemonic capacity that it has, mm-hmm. but you were also saying that
2: despite the terrorist
0: attacks that happened in the 90s with the IMU and other organizations? Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate on that? Why is this case? Sure. So the, uh, the terrorist attacks, which are often cited, are the ones um, that took place in 1999. I think, I think six-car bombs exploded uh, around the time when President Karimov's entourage passed through the city. And there were some speculations that the bombs intended to, to kill him. All right? And the government, there are lots of different kinds of analysis, and rumors, speculations, and whatnot. What is really, uh, uh, like, so the government immediately blamed the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, but they also moved Is Tahrir and another moderate, uh, uh, I'm forgetting the name, there was another um, kind of moderate um, Islamist um, who uh, ex- exiled you know the country? So they blamed everyone for for, for this attack and you know so there is again not enough compelling evidence um, to um, connect all you know put dots and eyes and kind of make all of those connections and and even less so in the case of 2004. 2004 was a kind of a, a bloody year for. Um, Uzbekistan because there was a series of um, attempted and uh, executed uh, bombings, um, more casualties than usual that year, but most of those killed were actually extremists themselves. So the government bl- blamed um, Islamic Jihad Union, but Islamic Jihad Union was formed, announced um, its presence in 2005, a year later. There were lots of things about those attacks like the chemicals that were used in the explosives that some explosives did not go off at all or in other instances they went off uh, prematurely suggesting kind of the lack of sophistication poor coordination one of the attacks one of the bombings took place on a at a bazaar kind of on a monday when bazaar was closed but there was the presence of military force or police force so none of the civilians was hurt but it was clearly aimed at um, the police and the law enforcement and so some claim that it had to do with kind of the policies kind of the, the extra rents that uh, were imposed on the traders in the bazaar that made um, you know they didn't have they didn't they were not making any more profit so the so the, the counter argument is that it's more likely there are kind of semi-autonomous or autonomous local cells of resistance they may embrace some religious <laughs> narratives they may claims, claim some tenuous connections to transnational groups but again, it's more likely local and m- m- having no links to drug trafficking. Just kind of to give you those two examples. I saw uh, you, know. you.
1: You addressed it as you were talking.
0: Okay, wonderful. Please.
1: Typically, that the terrorist organization co-opts uh, somewhat weakened criminal organization and starts, um, I guess, directing it by force, like you said, coercion, or is it more of a partnership? Typically?
0: So, in those types of instances, I, I, you know, we would our theory, if you wish, will um, argue that um, in in those captured um, uh, capacity states. We are more likely to see the true true conversions where, you know, either because of the coercion or because of you know acting for an extended uh, period of time jointly or side by side, or because changes in the leadership and leadership takes on more of those uh, for profit motives. But for whatever reason, so we are more likely to see that there will be the merger, either uh, um, either a terrorist organization kind of changes its identity becomes for a period of time much more inclined to engage in, in crime as a primary motive, or vice versa, um, or some, some, some sort of a hybrid will, will, be, will be formed in its place, or at least this is something that we hypothesize. And this is what we claim happened in uh, at the height of um, Tamil Tigers insurgency in Sri Lanka when Tamils became a state within the state, um, and this is where you know, those uh, linkages uh, between terrorism and organized crime, they blended and merged so much that it was difficult to to distinguish. Again, it it can be a single organization, or or you can have multiple organizations which are pursuing both politically motivated and criminal objectives. Or again, I didn't even bring up the importance of uh, changes within the organization. So for uh, the terrorist groups which have younger members um, who are organized in cellular form with semi-independent cells which have less ideological leadership, all of those internal changes will make a terrorist organization more prone to resort to, to crime. So you may have a, a single organization that is a hybrid or multiple organizations pursuing those um, uh, various political and criminal motives operating in the same space.
1: Um, so all your examples were within Central Asia. I guess I was just wondering if the ideas you presented could be uh-huh. applicable to a more global context, or is this really only, you know, is this only seen in the Central Asia region?
0: No, so yeah, so we do uh, in our, we looked cl- much closer, closer at four or five cases, so Tamil tigers uh, and their evolution and how depending on, you know, the extent to what the tigers kind of became the state within states, you know, how it then later translated into the hybridization of cr- uh, criminal and terrorist entities. Then we looked at, um, we also looked at um, how their connections to the Burmese government and what was happening in, in Burma in terms of drug trafficking and terrorism as well. Then we used collaboration, uh, organizational uh, linkages between uh, Kosovo Liberation Movement and Albanian mas- ma- ma- Mafia um, during and after the the Balkan Wars, as an example of um, um, organizational linkages, um, we were surprised. Um, Lawrence uh, was the <coughs> one who pointed it out that before civil war, Assad um, actually wielded considerable um, power and was able to use the security services to clamp down on militant activities and and drug trafficking. So. Um, um, serious uh, prior to years before civil war actually had hegemonic capacity and we we saw different but similar to Uzbekistan uh, situation there and then FARC um, also kind of it's an interesting case because you also see an evolution between uh, uh, operational uh, appropriation of activities to almost becoming a hybrid to something else so yeah we looked at those cases as well Maria?
1: Um, could you speak a little bit to the interventions to these issues? So my understanding is a lot of Western countries kind of fund interventions into this nexus. Mm-hmm. That you can explain doesn't really exist or isn't that prevalent. Um, and it seems like that would be funding corrupt governments that would kind of maintain their functionality for organized crime but then also maintain their corruption mm-hmm. for
0: So another interest of mine is uh, security assistance, particularly US security assistance to other countries, including Central Asia. So I can talk about it at length, but a couple of points are important, and we do address security assistance in the book as well. Um, so take a case of Tajikistan, right? We um, did invest for good reasons, because there are risks involved. It's a uh, longest border with Afghanistan. You have insurgency and, uh, you know, drug production and trafficking going on. Um, you you know, there are also these kind of regional divisions and, you know, some um, fault lines, um, regions versus center, planish divisions as well. So they're like all, the, all those kinds of things. So we did invest into, you know, border patrols training, equipping, building the facilities, um, uh, training. Um, but the problem is that they not limited the application of those skills to border patrol or counter drug trafficking. As a matter of fact, because the security services and border patrols are included in drug, so they use this capacity to, to, to consolidate control over drug trafficking and uh, we have a bunch of graphs to show how since 2000s, the drug trafficking interdictions, they went down and like women flat almost no change. So you, you place Uzbekistan's uh, graph next to Tajikistan's graph. 2010, Uzbekistan, pew, Tajikistan, pew. And Uzbekistan has 80-kilometer border with Afghanistan. Um, and, and, and you could also look at the drug production in Afghanistan. I mean, something is going on. You know, if, if the drug production increases, uh, Uzbekistan has higher interdiction rates, and Tajikistan goes down. I mean, something is going on there. So, so unfortunately, Tajikistan has used this capacity to uh, consolidate uh, its control over the drug trade and use it to strengthen <coughs> the regime of President Rahman, and they also used this capacity to uh, towards surveillance, monitoring of a variety of activities in the country that are unrelated to um, drug trafficking. So. In the, in the short run, it may present kind of an opportunity and it's a positive because you develop this capacity uh, in a weak state. But in the long run, it becomes kind of a hazard because this capacity is put towards um, a different kind of purpose that is counter to the intent of the aid because it marginalizes the population. It uh, may potentially radicalize them, and then goes on and on and on. So, and in, you know the United States needs to be uh, smarter about you know which agencies it's funding because uh, you know instead of putting all money into the kind of security services in, in Tajikistan, for example, you know the wealth can be more equally spread between a variety of other agencies. And so there are like ways in which it can be corrected, but it's also very very difficult because once you disperse the in there is no way to you know keep track of where it goes and whether it's uh, put to the good use. I'm yes.
2: curious uh, about like how we gather information, for example, the secret relationship between the criminal organizations and the state, is it mainly through the intelligence agency or other?
0: So are you asking from the research standpoint or how do the governments do? Like, are you asking about how we did that as researchers or how the governments do that?
1: Uh, How the government did So how?
0: well, this is the, the governments have the, the, they develop their intelligence capabilities, right? Um, to uh, you know, they collect the data, un- uh, analyze where the threats are coming from, uh, have um, in the, the, way the United States probably uh, the Tajiks are trained in that way as well, having the kind of the government as insiders implanted into the, the criminal groups um, to to collect the data to be able to prosecute them.
2: Yeah, so the data. Probably like many sources of intelligence agency. Data. Yeah, yeah, the data, a real. Yeah, information
0: is you know you know intelligence is all about gathering, analyzing, synthesizing uh, data. I
1: can have a two finger on that. Uh, What about the researcher?
0: How do you get? (laughs) Hard, (laughs) hard. Um, So we uh, conducted a lot of interviews in the field. Mm -hmm. Uh, Anyone who's interested in doing research on organized crime, it is hard. If, um, so a, a related project is um, on human trafficking. So I it took me three years just to figure out how to do that. <laughs> I've tried a lot of different methods, uh, largely unsuccessful, until we were able to get something. With drug trafficking, there is no perfect data, mm-hmm. and we've been just we've been criticized a lot in our publications. So the the, one, the most comprehensive data comes from the United Office on, um United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime. We were lucky to receive access to uh, like a passport-protected platform, which had um, records of all publicly available information on drug seizures that we were, you know, able to geocode and do other types of things. But even the UNODC you know, admits admit that they are able to. Uh, Collect data on you know anywhere between three to like ten percent of of, of of drug trafficking. So we are very careful to not make like when we analyze the data when we make uh, uh, interpretations of our findings. We are not saying that uh, a, a ton, one ton of seized drugs is going to result in a twofold increase in terrorism. So we don't make this kind of predictions because we understand that the data isn't perfect. But we smooth the data, you know, instead of using it, um, you know, the, the, the totals of all seizures, we come up with, like, other ways to really compensate for all of the deficiencies. But it's really, 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 really hard, so, but, you know, C is a source to go to if you're interested in drug seizures, um, uh, drug, interdic- drug interdictions or anything uh, related to drugs, and they have much more detailed data um, on the earlier years than I'm it's, it's 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 hard. But you, but you have to recognize what the limitations are and do your best to be transparent and do your best to mitigate um, those limitations. I
1: think we have time for one or two more questions. Was there another? Oh. Uh, I'm curious where Turkmenistan fits into the picture of all this. as the other Asian state that borders Afghanistan. And no whether you can speak to it, where it fits into the overall picture of contracting or within your rubric, too. Okay.
0: So, um since we are almost out of time, I'll give you a very brief answer. <laughs> yeah. Turkmenistan is a part of southern route, not a northern route. So, ex- uh, okay. not this is not really. I mean, it's uh, it's a technicality. No, we, we excluded Turkmenistan just because it's, it, it is it is even more difficult to get anything. Because I was uh, I collected a lot of sub national data, um, um, relying on publicly available statistics, with an understanding that those aren't perfect. But I was able to do. Um, um, the analysis based on the provinces uh, as the unit of analysis, nothing of this nature uh, can be accessed in Turkmenistan. So we didn't even go in that direction. All right, well, thank you very, very, very much. <laughs>